Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Asif Hassan. Asif is the co-founder and president of Quantify, a venture-backed applied artificial intelligence and data science software and services company that's about 10 years old. Quantify took a while to seek venture funding, and I look forward to hearing more from Asif as to why it went it alone for a while, bucking a trend in software organizations and the advantages of that pathway. Quantify's evolution is in many ways reflective of the evolution of artificial intelligence more generally across the past decade also, and I look forward to getting his perspectives on that as well. Asif, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Pleasure to be here, Peter. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I wanted to ask you a bit about uh, the background into Quantify itself. As I mentioned, the company is roughly uh, 10 years old. Uh, You'll be celebrating an anniversary soon. You've been a leader personally in the artificial intelligence data science field across multiple organizations. And before getting into the specifics of your company, though, I'd love to understand a bit more about your introduction to the topic and um, how you got involved in it, uh, what's proven, of course, to be a pathway towards entrepreneurship and uh, greater influence as a result of that. So we started Quantify nearly 10 years ago. In fact, on May 24th of 2023 uh, will be our 10-year anniversary. And outside of academia and a few other tech companies, the field of AI was pretty non-existent at that time. And I had spent uh, the prior 12 years working at a large healthcare equipment company. And in 2006, they had embarked uh, on a modernization effort and hired a leader to transform their maintenance services division. Uh, As it turns out, he was a visionary who was far ahead of his time. And his thesis was that information flowing through the veins of a company is its most valuable asset. And any company that learns to harness the power of data will reap enormous benefits, not just through better decision-making, but also taking it to the next level of automation and autonomous processes. Uh, Now, this seems like a very obvious idea today, but back in 2006, the term data scientist hadn't been even coined. Uh, And at that time, I was involved in building a couple of supply chain optimization models uh, as part of this effort. And he, for some reason, decided that I would be the guy who would turn his vision into reality. So I started to build out what would today be called a data science center of excellence. So we started out with some fairly mainstream models, uh, such as time series forecasting to predict demand, inventory optimization, distribution network optimization problems, et cetera. But over time, we started to get into more and more sophisticated uh, areas like Bayesian networks, even NLP techniques to analyze customer feedback. So this proved to be a great entry point uh, for me in the field of data science and AI. Very interesting. I appreciate you sharing that, that overview, Asif. Um, and I can understand why the topic was so exciting for you. Let's get into the genesis story of Quantify. What was the unmet need you identified that led to the company's creation? When I was building out this data science function, uh, the team grew very quickly and it started to become quite unwieldy and expensive. And at one point in time, our team spanned the globe everywhere from Singapore to Seattle. And as we were scaling, we decided to outsource some parts of the operation and started to look for partners. Uh, And as part of this, I found myself having to hire, train and enable these team members who were just being housed within an outsourced partner So I felt that the level of understanding of this domain among the technology services companies was quite low, and there would be an opportunity to build a very unique business. At the same time, the open source machine learning libraries like R, Python, et cetera, were becoming more and more performant, 
and the ability to manage large volumes of data in Hadoop clusters in the cloud was becoming more and more democratized. So we realized that we could build a very unique and valuable business uh, without investing an arm and a leg. And with that conviction, we decided to take a plunge into the unknown. What a fascinating journey. Thank you so much for articulating that. And speaking of those early days, when you started the company, you elected not to seek venture capital. I mentioned that at the uh, the top of the broadcast here. It's an unusual pathway for a software company. And I wonder if you could take a moment to, to talk a bit about that decision. Uh, why was that? And what are some of the advantages of having uh, chosen that pathway? Yeah, that's, that's uh, very true, uh, Peter. And I attribute that decision to my college buddy and co-founder Vivek. Uh, he had actually come from the corporate development world and he had seen the effects that dilution can have on the ability of founders to shape the destiny of their businesses. Uh, and he said something uh, very wise that I now tell other founders, which is till your business has product market fit, focusing on finding angel customers as opposed to angel investors is the right thing to do. Uh, it's a simple yet profound idea, and this is exactly what we did. And it turned out very well because we've been able to build the business to a size of almost 4,000 employees with very little dilution. And we now have a set of investors and board members who are super aligned with our hopes and aspirations of what this business can become. Another benefit of being bootstrapped in the first five years of our existence was that we became highly capital efficient because the trait of frugality is now deeply embedded within our DNA. That's really interesting that you note that, Asif. I can, I can imagine that this built a different kind of hygiene for you of frugality, as you, as you note. Not a lot of startups are necessarily known for that and perhaps aided your pathway to profitability and in growth in many ways uh, as well. Uh, can I ask you a bit about how much venture capital you've raised today? So far, we've raised uh, less than $20 million over two rounds. Uh, so the first round was uh, just a small friends and family round, which we did in late 2018. Uh, and then an institutional Series A round in December 2019, which worked out really well for us because uh, we went into this highly uncertain period of the pandemic with a very strong balance sheet and have essentially been able to triple our size since then, including one acquisition. Yeah, really interesting. One of the things that I found fascinating from a conversation you and I had recently is you described that the evolution of the company itself uh, and the fact that it aligns with the evolution of artificial intelligence, more generally speaking. Um, take a moment and talk a bit about the four phases of your organization across the past decade and provide a little bit of context, if you wouldn't mind, maybe beginning first uh, with what you've described as the the first phase Uh and some of what you did in that sort of seeking process. I would love to hear more about that. So yeah, there were you know several distinct phases, four phases as you've uh, outlined. The first phase was the obvious one, uh, 2013 through 16 was our product market fit. Uh, and as most entrepreneurs will tell you, this is the hardest part of building a business because it's a zero to one problem and it was no different for us. So during this period, we mainly focused on first and second degree network, uh, people that we knew educating potential clients on the benefits of data science and machine learning within the enterprise. And we were actually surviving on fumes, mainly proof of concepts, pilot projects that had small budgets. And this was the time that most of our competitors were calling these things science projects. But this was deeply formative uh, for us because we gained a strong understanding of the different industries and use cases where AI can have a transformational impact. 
We also developed a thesis that as machine learning gets better and better at seeing things, hearing things, understanding language, recognizing patterns, that companies will be able to derive better human machine experiences, offload repetitive tasks to machines, mine for knowledge, not just from rows and columns of data, but also from text, images, and videos. Uh, and we also knew that training these data-hungry, compute-intensive deep neural networks uh, will need GPU-enabled infrastructure and modernization of data platforms. Uh, so we brought together an entire portfolio of capabilities under one unified banner that we now call AI First Digital Engineering. And this was uh, when we found our product market fit. Very interesting. You mentioned that that first phase was roughly 2013 to 2016. The second phase you've mentioned is 2016 to 2019, which you refer to as the specialization phase. Describe that if you would. Sure. Uh, so once we had settled uh, on our AI-first digital engineering portfolio of offerings, uh, the next task for us was to find the most efficient path to our target customers, who were the executives leading innovation uh, agendas in companies. And we realized that partnering with hyperscalers like Google Cloud would be the most viable path to market. Hyperscalers, of course, offer a broad suite of technologies. And our realization was that our capabilities covered about 50% of that attack surface uh, for hyperscalers. And we decided to stay razor focused only on data and AI. So the specialization phase for us was to become the most densely talented and certified company within the hyperscaler ecosystem on AI capabilities. Very interesting. Uh, the third phase you noted coincided with the first two years of the pandemic when you verticalized your business. Um, why did you do so? And uh, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about the advantages of having done so. Sure. Uh, so somewhere in 2019, we saw that as the AI programs we were running started to move more and more into uh, production phase, the buying centers within enterprises started to shift from the technology function to the line of business. Uh, so we realized that we will need to immerse ourselves in a select set of industries so we can really start to speak the language of these businesses. This is when we started to build uh, our industry lines of business like healthcare and life sciences and financial services. These businesses now include not just technology professionals, but also deep domain experts who have decades of experience working in one single industry. And we've also created highly productized portfolio of offerings across these select industries like AI-assisted medical imaging in healthcare, uh, claims automation suite in insurance, and, and other similar examples. Again, really interesting to get those details. The, the fourth phase covers the past year and, and, and change and has been deeply impacted by the progress made in generative AI and large language uh, models, LLMs. Uh, certainly a topic that I know is in the minds of a lot of executives today, technology and non-technology executives alike. How are you leveraging this much talked about phase of artificial intelligence? That's a great question. The best way I can think about characterizing it is what we've seen happen since November 30th of last year, when ChatGPT was released, is that over 100 million people essentially went out on their first date with AI. Most of them were very impressed. Some were concerned. Some found the experience a bit unsettling, but almost everyone was intrigued. Uh, so ChatGPT has shown a glimpse of the possibilities of generative AI at a planetary scale in a way no technology has done before. And it's also generated a lot of hype. And when you actually cut through the noise, what you'll find is that fundamentally what has happened 
is that generative AI is bringing the marginal cost of performing a cognitive task down sustainably and significantly, just like Moore's law was bringing down the cost of computation in the prior decades. So in the pre-generative AI paradigm, a model would have to be custom built to perform a specific task using supervised learning. And this was both cumbersome and expensive. Now, what generative AI has shown is that you can pre-train a large language model to perform a fundamental task like predicting the next token in a sequence of words uh, or predicting the next pixel uh, uh, in an image. And now this foundational model can actually be used as a substrate uh, of an AI system that can be very inexpensively fine-tuned to perform a huge variety of tasks. And this dynamic is bringing down the marginal cost of performing a cognitive task with AI in a big way. And I believe that this will cause a fundamental change in how entire industries are configured. Uh, you're starting to see this happen already. If you look at uh, certain segments uh, of marketing agencies where platforms like Jasper AI have disrupted copywriting, and some people have actually used it to write entire books. Uh, and as generative AI starts to meet and exceed human levels of precision in a whole variety of tasks, the same story will actually play out industry after industry in the coming years. On our home turf at Quantify, we built and launched a platform called Bionic, spelt B-A-I-O-N-I-Q, uh, short for Bionic plus AI plus Quantify, uh, which will help enterprises efficiently access a variety of foundation models, uh, domain adapt these models on their own data, instruction fine tune these models on enterprise-specific tasks like generating work order summaries, or redlining legal contracts, and use these capabilities to amplify the productivity of their knowledge workers. So even within Quantify, we are using generative AI, for example, to boost the productivity of our engineers using the paradigm of pair programming. And we are starting to see some pretty significant productivity gains, and we feel that we're just getting started uh, on this journey. Asif, I know you've described that the next phase you're anticipating is centering around helping foster an artificial intelligence ecosystem. I, I thought that was a really interesting idea, and I wanted to sort of unfold that a little bit further. Uh, talk a bit about what you mean by that and how you'll do so. That's a very, very important question, uh, Peter. So until recently, one of the defining aspects of the AI ecosystem was that it was an open ecosystem. And by that, what I mean is that the first time an important discovery was made. The researchers published the idea and open sourced the code. And companies like Google and NVIDIA, et cetera, have a rich history of doing this. In fact, the transformer networks architecture that initiated the whole movement towards generative pre-trained models was published by Google Research. And in recent years, what we've seen is a shift away from this dynamic with models like GPT and others being kept proprietary, uh, which has now caused almost a dynamic like an arms race. And what used to be a very collaborative open ecosystem has now become uh, a little bit more closed. Uh, and I, for one, believe that in order for AI to be equitably useful to humanity, we need to find our way back to it being an open ecosystem, albeit one that has strong governance and oversight. Uh, and we're a very small part of this ecosystem, but the way we hope to be helpful here is by bringing the best capabilities of the ecosystem to solve unique challenges for businesses. And this involves working like, uh, with academic research groups like MIT CSAIL, technology companies like NVIDIA, Google, Databricks, and others 
uh, and then bridging the gap between what they are offering and what organizations need to transform their business and continuing to contribute back to the open source community while doing this. Yeah, really, really fascinating. I, I want to circle back for a moment, if you don't mind, to a generative AI. As I mentioned earlier, it's really something that's gaining a tremendous amount of momentum across organizations. And I wonder, you know, as you think about it, what are some of the biggest disruptions you see coming from generative AI? So in order to answer that question, Peter, one has to actually look at the previous technology-led disruptions. So if you think back to when smartphones first came out, one of the first casualties was the standalone GPS device that we used to have in in our cars uh, because Google Maps could now give turn-by-turn directions. And that was a task-level disruption where the same task of providing directions could now be done by an app on a smartphone. But a few years later, combining the same capabilities, Uber came along and disrupted the transportation mobility industry, which is an example of a system or an industry-level disruption. So with generative AI as well, I feel the disruption will follow a similar pattern and many knowledge work will see some form of disruption or another. Uh, And one common pattern I see is any type of knowledge work where an individual is performing a repetitive uh, knowledge-based task on some specification or a standard operating procedure is the first one that's most likely to be disrupted. So for example, this type of work includes a customer service agent following a call script and responding to a customer based on some knowledge base, or a paralegal reviewing a commercial contract and redlining it based on some organizational standards, or even a developer writing code to fulfill a specification or a set of user stories. And these are uh, areas where we'll see direct substitution of generative AI, and this will unfold before us in the next 12 to 24 months. However, the much bigger disruption will be seen when we experience a system level change. So imagine that a team of uh, a dozen highly creative people enabled by generative AI can create studio quality TV shows. Uh, Now, how how might that impact the dynamics of the media and entertainment industry is something to think about. And such system level changes will always take longer. They are second order impacts, but the impact will be transformative. But there's actually one singular factor that will drive all these changes, and that is a sustained drop in the marginal costs of performing a cognitive task. So one has to keep a sharp eye on all tasks where generative AI is nearing or breaching human levels of accuracy and reimagine tasks, workflows, and entire business model with this one singular lens. Really interesting insights. Gives us reason to stay tuned as to how that will continue to evolve. I also wanted to ask you, Asif, um, as somebody who has reason to speak with a great number of organizations that are representative of your customer base, uh, what do you see as differentiating factors between those companies that successfully harness the power of AI and those that don't? So, Peter, in the last 10 years, uh, we've done over 2,500 AI projects uh, across over 350 customers in nine industries. And we see a few common patterns in the ones who have got it right. So the first factor is culture. Uh, The most successful organizations foster a culture of curiosity and experimentation, and they have a high tolerance for failure as long as the learning rate uh, of these failures is acceptable. Second is, uh, I would say, the presence of a champion. And this champion can be either at a departmental level or an enterprise level and is someone who's a true believer in the power of AI 
and is willing to let the team experiment, fail, learn, and evolve. And at the same time, this champion is also someone who has a real feel for the business impact uh, that AI will have in a way that is very direct and obvious where no one has to run a spreadsheet model to see whether there is a positive ROI or not. And third, of course, the technology and talent enablement plays a big role. And there is some sort of programmatic investment in capability building within these organizations. Uh, and last, but definitely not the least, uh, these businesses have thought about the human aspect of the work that they are going to do with AI. And whether it's uh, change management, AI ethics, or broader governance issues, they have been thoughtful about it. And when the confluence of these factors uh, has happened, we have seen magic happen, and these customer relationships have grown bigger and faster than what we would have ever, ever imagined. I wanted to close, if you don't mind, Asif, with uh, some thoughts about your own journey and some of the secrets to your success. You've had a very interesting uh, career. You spent a dozen years at Philips Healthcare, um, had a rising set of responsibilities, now a decade as an entrepreneur, a very successful one as well. What have been the, the difference makers for you along the way, the secrets to your success, so to say, that have put, put you in the position you're currently in? First off, uh, that's a very flattering question, Peter, because I feel that as an organization, Quantify is just getting started. And for us to truly call ourselves successful, there are many, many more things that me and my co-founders need to accomplish. But at a, at a personal level, what I can tell you is that what kept me motivated over this past decade and how that has actually manifested in the growth of our business. And I can say this not just for myself, but also for my co-founders, that we are all like very deeply passionate about the work that we do. So, you know, AI is making headlines now in 2023, but back in 2013, there were very few uh, of us involved in this field. And what kept us going while we were facing rejection after rejection is that we really enjoyed what we were doing. And that passion kept us going till the market momentum converged around uh, our capabilities somewhere in 2016. So having a genuine passion for this type, type of work was one big factor. The other big factor I would say is very rigorously applying the magic of compounding in everything we do. And what I mean by that is thinking about every touch point in our business as an appreciating asset. So for example, when we are hiring, an important thing we try to assess is once we enable this person, will she or he keep getting better and better over time? Or if we invest time in a new customer relationship, will this relationship keep getting better and better over time? Or if we design a new system, will the feedback loops we build into it make the system better and better over time? And this has been a profoundly powerful decision-making lens because if you build a business with this compounding uh, dynamic, time actually becomes your friend and when you look back, the accomplishments start to look more and more staggering as time goes on. Number one, being passionate about your work. And number two, viewing everything you do with a compounding lens would be like my two cents of advice for entrepreneurs who are listening to this podcast. Well, that's great advice, I think, for anyone to follow, uh, translated into the various environments that are represented by our, our listenership and viewership here. Um, Asif Hassan, thank you so much for taking time with me today on Technovation. It's been great to hear more about uh, your company, its growth, and likewise, the evolution of artificial intelligence at the same time, in addition to some really interesting sneak peeks to what you see coming in the future. It's been a really great conversation. Thank you, Peter. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I'm very happy to engage with your listeners. Uh, if they would like to reach out to me on anything 
uh, I can be helpful with. So thank you.